This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 313 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, my guest. This week is Kevin Templin of Templin Family. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you. We are sitting here in the barrel room of the brewery in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's been a little while since I've been to Salt Lake City, probably six years or so. Um, but I'm happy to be back. Uh, I spent a summer in college out here in Salt Lake City, and so it, it's always nice getting back out here and seeing the mountains, coming in through the mountains. I drove out here from Fort Collins just to uh, to get my dose of Wyoming on the way in. Um, also, just keep it fun. I love these uh, I love mountain road trips. And so so here we are. If any of uh, if folks out there have seen the latest issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, the lager issue, you may have seen the Templin family granary Keller beer scored a whopping 99 with our blind panel as the top scoring uh, German uh, pale lager of the issue. Um, and then, of course, as I was looking it up, I realized that you've won three GABF medals for that same beer over the last three years. Um, what, two bronzes and a silver Um but it has meddled in three straight years in the Keller beer category at GABF. No small feat. Yeah, it's consistency. That's good, right? So you, you're doing something right. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, of course, the World Beer Cup, you won a medal for a hazy, uh, strong pale ale and a Brett beer. And uh, um, you, you've won um, GABF medal for the Rauch beer that I'm drinking right now. Um, you know, of course, over your brewing career, which spans decades here in Salt Lake City, you've won a slew, a slew of medals. Um, but here with Templin, you get to, to really dial in and focus on the beers that you love and how you make them. The other amazing thing about this brewery is that uh, it has a, what, 10 or 12 beers on tap that are all 5% or less. And so speaking as a person who loves to drink good quantities of lower ABV beer, um, it's kind of a dream brewer's brewery out here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to the strange beer laws. It's a it's a brewer's brewery for sure. Yeah, I enjoy low ABV beers. I'm I'm 100 with you there. We're going to talk about all these things: lager brewing, because that's a big part of what you focus on here. Um, brewing smaller beers. You know, we will you know probably get into. Some, I really don't want to talk about hazy IPA because it seems like uh, that might be a distraction. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about how you make smoked beer here in the United States too. Um, but we're definitely going to talk about your Keller beer and definitely going to talk about your Hellas and uh, um, because lagers figure deeply into uh, what you love to brew and of course won a number of awards for you over these years. Before we talk about that, GD Chillers. The brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24 7 service and support. Want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? GD's micro channel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. These GD chillers you've got out here, are uh, yeah. they are working in this 100-degree heat here uh, you know, in, the, in Salt Lake City. Um, but they are... <laughs> yeah, they keep everything nice and cold. They yeah, are. They, you know, and especially when the sun just beats on them like that. It's 110, 115 degrees in the corner there, so it's hot. 
brutal, 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 brutal. But here they are, and they're keeping those lager tanks cold. Also, this episode is sponsored by the folks at BSG who understand that the best beer starts with the best ingredients. That's why all BSG hops are hand-selected for quality by their expert staff, so you can trust you're getting the very best hops from the very best growers in the U.S. and around the world. Discover BSG's extensive range of domestic and imported hops at bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading to oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Kevin, as you know, we normally kick things off talking a little bit about uh, you know your arc through brewing. What's uh, what's yours look like? How'd you end up out here in Salt Lake City, and uh, you know, and then of course, uh, you know, what was the path that got you here to start Templin? Uh, you know, a number of years ago in the late twenty teens uh, here in Salt Lake City, this place that you can call your own. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a classic story. Ski bum. I uh, left. I was working in Maine and got a one way ticket to Little Cottonwood Canyon. And uh, got a job up in Alta that same day. My brother was living there and lived there for maybe three years. Then went down to the valley and still worked and skied at Alta for a long time. Volunteered at a brewery in 1995. Um, I was allowed to mash out and scrub the parts bucket. And then they put me on minimum wage. 1995. That was the summer I was out here in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And then... uh, off we went. Uh, worked at Red Rock Brewing Company and ran two brew houses there for 18 years. And we had some interest in the company there and liquidized that in about 2014 and said, if we're going to do it, we need to do it. So we got a business plan together and uh, opened up in 2018. And now this is a, it's definitely a dream. So, you know, when you decided to go out on your own, coming out of a you know secure job, eighteen years at an established brewery with a steady paycheck, yep. you know what was the, what was the vision and what drove you to create your own brewery? What did you want to do that might have been a little bit different, or or, or was there a way to do it that might have been a little bit different? Uh, yeah, I think um, all of the above. the The vision that I wanted, the um, the layout, the image, the 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 beer lineup, quality. Um, everything all the way around from the glassware down to the, to the faucets, to the brew house. It was just something that I said, if I'm going to do a brewery, I want it to look like this and I want the beer to go in this glass and I want the Pilsner in this glass and I want the, you know, IPAs in this glass and I want it poured like this. And I didn't want to have to go through anybody's opinion or what they thought it should look like to do it at a lesser cost. Um, we're really not in this to buy a new Ferrari. I make a good living, but what it's really about is, is super high quality, very perfect presentation and due diligence when it comes to time and making these beers in the right way. I mean, we don't hurry any beer. If we run out of Hellas, we just run out of Hellas. But in a perfect world, we we don't run out of Hellas. <laughs> you don't have a marketing staff that's like, yeah. well, you need this now for yeah. packaging, or you know. No, there's no there's no push like that. Yeah. We don't. We have very minimal um, draft counts, like count them on one hand, um, and that has to do with uh, 
presentation. They need our glassware. They need our faucets. They need to be educated. They need to come down here. They need to brew a batch of beer with us. They do the whole nine yards before they can actually have the beer. And it's no skin off my back. I'm not saying we don't want to sell more beer, but if they don't want to present the product the way that we want it presented, then, then they just can't have it. It's like that. Pretty much. I mean, hey. and it's not, it's not a, it's not a, um, a, a macho thing or a conceited thing. It's just, I don't want a beer that took me 10 weeks to make going into a uh, totally dirty Bud Light glass. You know what I mean? Like, sure, a, tum- like sure. a tumbler or something like that. I, and um, I think it's disrespectful to the brewers and the time and the, and the ingredients and, and everything that goes into it. Well, you know, like other brewers that do that, whether it's, you know, Bierstadt in Denver and, you know, there's others in the Northeast, you know, there's something about that that means that every experience that, that any consumer has with the brand is going to be correct. Yeah. You know, they they may not love the beer because the pe- people that are drinking it, whether they like that beer style or not, you know, that's up to them. But it'll be served well, the presentation will be right, and it will feel well presented it feels special you know it it feels like you're getting something you're having an experience it's not just the aroma and the flavor and everything else it's the whole it's the whole package it's the experience of it i can respect people that do that i think it's uh but you know we're not a big brewery i think we did four thousand barrels last year which is decent for a 15 barrel brew house but wait you did four thousand barrels limited draft accounts you sell package then uh, through distribution. Yeah, here? so okay. there's a lot of bars and, and restaurants that have our can product, and and that's right. a, that's all good. And, but we don't we don't do much draft beer at all. Yeah, it's in house. I really want people to come sit here. I mean, we have beautiful communal seats that everybody gets to sit together. We get fresh pretzels and charcuterie boards made locally every single day. We have world class beer tenders, and we have a great cocktail wine menu and. Everything is, I want everything to be presented and, and, um, yeah, presented to the people correctly. You know, I think that's important to me. So when you say, why would you leave a job that you had a good paycheck and you're just, you know, riding, riding easy, that's because it's not ever easy. It's not like that. I don't mean to imply that. No, but (laughs) yeah, it's, I don't want to just keep pumping out the same beer, same beer, same beer, same beer. I want to say, oh, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's, Let's go down this road and see what happens. But then when we do go through these big, long phases of maturation and stuff like that, I want it to be presented to the customer in, in, in the way that I see. And then it's not the way that the whole world sees it, maybe, but that's just the way that we see it here. Well, you get one shot on this planet, right? Yeah, like, amen. you know, our time amen. is limited here. Oh, amen. And, uh, you know, why not strive to do the best that you can oh, rather 100%. than just yeah. doing something? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk, and, and like I said uh, earlier, there's a whole bunch of beers that are 5% or less because anything you serve on draft has to be 5% or less yep. um, due to, again, these strange laws in Utah. You do ha- make beers that are larger than that, but even in your own tap room, have to serve those out of cans. A little strange, you know, but uh, hey, at least the laws are better now than they were in 1995 when yeah. I was last here. Um, yeah, we were a 10 Palato brewery for 18 plus years, more than that, 20, 22 years almost. And you think, so... Everything on draft had to be 3.2 or less, 4% by volume or less. And then there was no high ABV can beers or bottle beers. Squatter Wasatch did make some. Um, you went to did make some. Um, they do a great job at that. But they're, they're big brew houses, and, and they have you know rotary fillers, and they can go down that road. But as far as a little brew pub goes, anything on draft had to be 
you know, 4% or less. And 2018, it switched up to 5%. And it doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but I tell you, just that little bit of Play-Doh wiggle room, it made a made a pretty, now you can make what 11 and a half to 12 play-doh yeah beers. so it made a big difference you know made yeah a big difference yeah. yeah um but and now that's still the big focus here for draft uh, making drinkable beers yep. that people can order uh you know in multiples and safely drink and enjoy even though we are here at altitude at uh you know what's it four thousand something yeah something right around yeah, there, yeah yeah um you know so making smaller beers isn't the worst thing in the world uh anyway i want to to get more into that especially uh kind of dive into your approach to lager before we do that acubrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a batch the acubrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process monitor gravity fermentation activity clarity and temperature, schedule reminders, and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP-ready device is designed to stay out of your way. They know your time and space is precious, and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning, and no calibration. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.io. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world. With consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trend, it can be difficult for production teams to keep up with requirements. The Pro Fill series of rotary can fillers from Pro Brew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how we can take your operations to the next level. Pro Brew brew your beer. And Tabski QR code ordering is the future of brewery ordering. With Tabski, your customers can order and pay for their beers right from their phones by scanning a QR code on the table. Get rid of lengthy lines and increase check sizes by up to 30%. Tabski is free for operators and integrates seamlessly with popular payment systems like Clover and Square. So why not join the future of brewery ordering and give Tabski a try? Learn how you can get started today at tabski.com. All right, Kevin, let's talk about lager brewing. Um, obviously, you know, through previous breweries and brewery, uh, beer design, you've been honing beers for a long, long time. You were able to bring those, you know, some of those uh, nascent beers and help fully form them here through Templin. Um, the core beers that you focus on are the Granary uh, Keller beer and the Munich Hel- style Hellas. Um, what do you want to talk about first? <laughs> Lager beer, I guess. Let's talk uh, yeah, about I mean, lager You know, beer, the yeah. thing, too, is with l- lager beer, obviously, it's got a big place in my heart. We've been to Germany multiple times. And the the whole low ABV thing, when it really started off in the early 2000s, late 90s, is there's a lot of styles there that you can make at a low ABV. I mean, it's really hard to put an IPA on draft at 4%. You know, now we go down that road of saying, what can we put on draft at a low ABV? And so I think that's really where the seed really started to say there was a necessity yeah, it was to almost it. like a necessity but then it really it really uh turned into such a love that you know if it was up to me it's that's all we'd have on draft but the customers do like a variety just like everywhere else in the world and so yeah I, lager brewing is definitely um it's definitely my heart that's for sure so where as you are starting to develop you know your approach to lagers 
what did you choose to be inspired by? You know, and, and uh, you know, the world of lager brewing, European lager brewing is, is pretty broad. And even within a country like Germany, there are lots of uh, models to pull from, depending on what your own preferences are. Where, where were you looking primarily, um, you know, for your inspiration there? Well, I think a lot of it came from all the trips to Germany that I went to. I went to, to did a short stint at Doman's Brewing Academy in 2004 and then 2007, when we went back to we the Wirements flew us out there, so we hit a bunch of medals at GABF, and and then um, I think Fessel Golden Ale and Bomberg is yeah was something that I always said, God, I gotta love to make a beer like this, you know. And I don't know if it's a Hellas or a Pills, it's called Golden Pills, but I said I need to start crunching down on this. And like we talked about before the pod is, I don't think it's an it's like a never ending book. Yeah. When you, when you think you're gonna turn a page and get to the end, it's it's there's a whole nother chapter. So it's always trimming. It's always um, looking at raw ingredients. It's looking at, um, you know, hop selection. It's looking at yeast health. It's looking at the employees. And if they're happy and they're in a good mood and, and everyone's uh, cruising along, then that always makes better beer too. So that's all nice. But then at some point, you've got to put a recipe down and you have to start brewing it. Mm -hmm. So as you're thinking about how you want to capture that kind of spirit, where do you, where'd you first go? You know, what was the foundation of your recipe? Where did you start in writing a recipe for Munich Hellas? Well, I mean, it's a a gentle malt forward. Yeah. Not, not so as, what did you choose for malt How, and why? Wireman. Yeah, okay. Um, and and why? It's, a, it's a typical answer. Which, I which know, wire, but, you know, is there a specific, um, uh, you know, pills malt so that you? We use a lot of Barca pills. Okay. Um, and we'll do a little blend of Barca pills and Pilsner. Um, unlike like our Keller beer, just be 100% just straight Pilsner malt. Um, we do sprinkle in a little bit of carafoam sometimes, but it, what is it about that malt that, uh, do you think creates well, the, the kind thing, of they sold? I mean, I really got sold on it. They, they brought us to the facility. I've been there four times. They said, I see where it's made. I've seen the fields. I see the quality. I see how they treat it. Um, you can smell it. You can taste it. You're seeing it germinated. You're seeing it kiln. You're watching it the whole nine yards and then it gets on a ship and then it comes over here and all of a sudden it's in the brewery. And to me, that's good. But we use several Pilsner malts. We use a lot of Heidelberg Best malts. Um, we've used some malts out of Colorado and stuff like that. So it's, um, I like it. Um, it's always worked very well for us. Um, it's very predictable. And so making changes to the grist itself isn't something of a big surprise when you add, you know, 400 pounds of something that you've never used before and you want to make your Hellas. And so to talk me out of, um, predictability is is a difficult sell. Sure, is there something to the the flavor that that malt provides? Because you know, Hellas, and to you know, generally speaking, isn't necessarily a crispy beer, um, even mm -hmm. though that seems to be a, a popular term right, for right. for this whole style now. You know, it's generally a full beer as experienced in Germany, and uh, uh, you know, and so there there is a, a, that fullness of character to it. Uh, you know, is there something about that? There's just there's not a lot of a, yeah. There's not a lot of astringency. You can you can lauder down pretty low with those with the malt, and it doesn't lead to a lot of uh, scratchy. I call it like powderiness in the back end, and it just creams off nicely. And especially with our lagering regiment, I mean that's got a five week minimum horizontal lagering regiment on that beer. So that's a it's about a nine week eight eight to nine week beer, and I think that in the long run really helps that beer cream off. Um, gives you that softer texture to it. And we're not talking malty because 
then people start going into the world of this beer is going to be sweet and stuff like that. But it, I mean, it's a definition of a workerman's beer. I mean, it's so widely consumed that there's a reason for that. Um, Pilsner also, but Pilsner's our Pilsner is definitely um, unfiltered and it's got a little bit more scratch, I want to say to it. And it's got a little bit more abrasiveness and, and definitely more IBUs to it. Yeah. I like the idea of creamy. A Hellas is creamy. Yeah. yeah, but not creamy like you think of like a cream ale or like a blonde ale or something like that. But it's just, it, it's, it's got just enough cleansingness to it that it invites you back to drink more like every sip. And I think that's, that's the object of a beer like that is consumability. Um, and you should be able to session those beers all day, every day and not really have to think too much about it. You know, you're enjoying it. You like the flavor, the texture. We're big texture brewery. I mean, it's that's that's Hellas in a in a nutshell for me. Sure, sure. That with a, a nice soft foam that helps amplify. Oh yeah, that uh, is, that idea yeah. of creaminess without the sweetness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it helps sell that whole soft idea. Yeah, the and the the way that we carbonate our beers too is I mean we spun every 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 lager beer and by the time we move it to to the horizontals we'll be north of two 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 volumes and I've I've noticed I don't know the science behind it but I've noticed that it's just like the micron size of the bubble is is so soft and creamy and dense compared to forced carbonation or bottle conditioning or something like that. And I think that really adds to the texture of the beer in the, in the, in the, I don't want to say silky, but yeah, definitely a, a, a creaminess to it. Yeah. Um, is there, you know, um, anything to your, uh, mash regimen? Are you a decoction brewery here no, in uh, no. your lagers? No. Okay. No. no decocting. We're, we're straight single infusion and it's always worked really well for us. Would huh. I like to decoct beers? Yeah, sure. We do kind of like a step on our vice beer. Yeah. Uh, to push a little, um, more phenolic and less American isolamel character to it, kind of get away from that. Um, but no, we're straight single infusion. Um, we mash pretty thin and pretty cool on most mm. of those beers. Our beers are really well fermented out. I mean, we're in the ones typically on about 75% of those beers. And that's that low, low temperature step, but, uh, yeah. you know, but you're not even step mashing this. It is just a, low temperature single infusion mash thin and cool yeah and then now if you want to talk is about there like a you know that's a, the so thin what kind of like liquor to grist ratio are you do you rock on that i mean i, I could, oh. I could tell, don't hit me with that okay, okay I, I mean i could tell you here sure, in a minute but sure. i have to go break the, cal to go look break, break the calculator out yeah. but every beer's got a certain amount of water x dough in water that we do with x amount of pounds on our plc we have a, a a system that we can go ahead and say we want X amount of gallons going in with at X amount of speed with X amount of grist and it just talks to itself. Um, but that thinner mash you think yeah. does actually yeah, it's less favor, favor attenuation. Oh yeah, I think so for sure. And yeast health and a good healthy amount of O2 when you're knocking out is, is always helpful. You know, that's the total opposite of what we did forever because we were always trying to make these beers feel fuller and, chewier mouthfeel when you're brewing 3.2 percent beer right, right so we would heavily dextrin load all the mashes and we were talking 158 plus 159 rest yeah, i mean yeah. thick and hot because we were trying to get this <laughs> yeah this, if it's 3.2 yeah, four percent yeah, abv yeah, yeah. we're trying to get this false sense of body we're trying to get this false sense yeah. of like you're consuming this big rich nice full-bodied beer 
and it was just dextrin loading. What a difference 1% oh, yeah. of alcohol by yeah. volume makes. Yeah, it helped. For sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, water. You've got uh, good, well, you've got reservoirs uh, up in the mountains around you that I imagine, you know, Salt Lake City water comes from, right? Yeah, we have we have fantastic water. I mean, we average six. It's not something people would expect since no. you've got a giant dead Salt Lake right yeah, here. Yeah, that Salt Lake is that's that's in a different world yeah. for me. I mean, it's right down the street, but it's not because we're right on the Wasatch Mountains. That we get world class snow. It melts. It comes down. It comes right to the brewery, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. You Great know. snow year this past winter, too. Yeah, we averaged about 600 inches. This year, we got just a little over 900 inches of snow. I mean, the skiing here is ridiculous, obviously. I mean, that's the whole reason that I moved here was for, for skiing. And uh, So much you, snow that people couldn't get out of the resorts this winter. Uh, the people were snowed into the resorts in yep. some places. Yeah, my brother works at the uh, Alta Central up there, and they were shut down for four or five days at a time. And some people are like, I'm a doctor, I have to leave. And they're like, you're not leaving. They, the only way you could leave during the interlodge, interlodge is when they lock down all the buildings for avalanche danger, right. is you have to charter a helicopter. It's amazing. So you, you know, anyway, you're using uh, reservoir water that's really clean, imagine low uh, um, you know, total mineral content, total dissolved solids in that. Yeah, and, and you know, we're a real keep it simple, stupid brewery. I don't want to get... I know a lot of breweries that they'll strip it down to nothing with RO and they try to rebuild it up to a, a Czech profile or a, an English profile or a, a Northwest profile. Um, I've never really had to do that too much. Um, we do real basic acidification, um, look for target mashed pHs and knockouts and let it run. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so simple and, but it really is to be quite honest with you. Um, Sensory evaluation, I think, is our is our biggest technical thing that we focus on. Um, sensory on every beer is through the whole fermentation maturation. And then when it gets tapped and put on draft, and obviously that's a, the final decision. Tell me about that. What does that mean? I mean, I imagine so that you and the brewing staff are tasting these beers, you know, through that kind of process, um, you know, and as well as measuring quantitative data on that along the way too. What do you, what does that process then look like? Well, every time we brew a beer, it's like, so let's just say we're going to make a uh, check pills again, like we brew today. Well, we're not, we're not going to load the grist. We're not going to go into it until like a couple days before the day before we sit down again and we look at the last two or three recipes and we try it again and we say, okay, now we're moving in this direction. Is this the right direction we want to go in? And these are like micro decisions these are very small shavings you know because i always tell people making beers you know anyone can make beer but to make that beer go from 90 percent to 100 percent, that's the most difficult part and that, that's what we call is like shaving these little teeny texture areas off of these little teeny um aroma properties visual properties foam properties and so i think it's every time you're knocking another you know half of a percent off of your shaving and you would like to think that you'll get there one day but crops change and water changes and brewers change and life changes, you know? And so I think that affects everything. So yeah, then let's, you know, let's back up and talk about that creative process before you brew a new batch of some of these beers, not every beer. I imagine some of them you're fairly locked in on, yep. um, you know, but if there are beers that you think are still moving targets, 
um, you know, out of those, how many beers, you know, that you brew consistently, would you still consider moving targets? And how many do you just, uh, you know, kind of the recipe, let it roll kind of, you know, approach? I think they're all moving a little bit. I think yeah. some move more than others. Um, and as the guys know, it's kind of like a joke around a brewery. I'm like, this beer's too bitter. This beer's too bitter. This beer's too bitter, you know? And so, and they're more of the new school, you know, I'm 52 and these kids are all 25 to 35 years old and and they they know better almost than me yeah what the modern consumer is into um i mean if it was up to me we'd just drink keller beer and hellas all the time you know what i mean <laughs> sure sure <laughs> but it's uh, i think the, the the targets are they say and i give them free reign you know but we they write up a new recipe like sam or kyle or jacob they'll write up a new recipe and we'll say okay this looks good but well, why is there 12 malts in here? Can we just, let's just simplify this and start with a little bit more of a simplify. And then if we need to bump this up to the left and bring this down to the right and maybe push forward or backwards with, you know, aroma or bitterness or something like that. And it's not, we really don't, I mean, we don't have a GC unit. It's not like that. It's just sensory and it's experience. We've been making beer for 25 years. And so you go, don't put that much special B in. That's way too much. And they're like, no, no, it's no. And I say, no. Good listen. Got to think about this a little bit because you can always add more in the next batch. We can always, but once it's done and it's made and it's on drafts, as you know, it's, you can't take anything out. So, but I try to let them have free free reign and stuff like that. I mean, that's where the hazies and stuff like that came into when we first opened. I said, sure, we'll make a hazy. Why not? You know, and it sold out like in a day. And I was if you like, have a brewer that has a recipe and wants yeah. to make it, why yeah. would you say yeah. no? Yeah. yeah, why would you say no? Unless it's like some other recipes, you're just like, holy smokes, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, you know, for somebody, again, who's got two decades of experience brewing here and a lot of lot of metals in the bank, you know, creating that opportunity for other for your brewing staff to get a voice in here and to make beers here at a brewery with your name on it is actually still, uh, you know, that there's something – to be said for being open to that kind of process. Yeah. Tell, tell me about, you know, what the motivation is behind that and how you all then work to collaboratively develop these recipes. Well, it's called Templin Family Brewing. They're part of the family. And whether they stay here for 10 years or they're here for a couple of years, I, I want them to know that they had a vested interest in it. And when they're making the product, I, I want them to say, yes, I want this product to be good. I want this beer to be good i like who i work for i like being here and then when they move on to you know their next gig wherever that might be they'll always talk positively about their experience and how they learned how to make new flavors and new aromas and new barrel aging and, and that kind of stuff you give them the opportunity to you know it's like we call it like templin university you know what i mean because we they come in here we we learn we learn together um i learned from the new guys then they learn from the old guys and and I, I have a vested interest to make sure that everybody that works here, m when they do move on to another place, that they are way more comfortable in their craft than when they showed up. That is a different approach than some people take to operating with staff in their breweries, you know, where some folks feel like I'm training someone that someone else is going to be benefit from their experience. Um, and they feel like, you know, they feel put out by that kind of thing. Um, what is it that drives your that feeling of wanting to help everyone get better? Well, it's because I care about them, I guess. They're part of my family. So I want them to do good. I don't necessarily want them to just 
take a photo of every recipe and then <laughs> run down the street and make it all. But just like you said, if you have 10 breweries on one block and we say, here's a recipe, go make this pale ale, that every pale ale on a, every single brewery is going to be just a little bit different. So it, it's really hard to completely duplicate something um, if you move to another facility. And we've had got, we've had several people that left here, and we've had three of the brewers that work for me all graduated with their masters from Harriet Watt. They all left and went there. And then they're running High West Distillery, and they're you know Rita just graduated. She was a, a brewer here. She was a bartender. She didn't even really you know don't don't get mad at me, Rita, but she didn't even really know how to tap a keg. And by the time she left here, she got accepted into Harriet Watt at a blink of an eye. Graduated top of her class, and now she's wanted all over the world. And for me, that's that's rewarding. Well, let's step back again and talk about this process then. So for these beers that are moving targets, you know, a couple of days before you brew them, you guys sit back down together as a team mm -hmm. and reconsider each recipe every single time? Yeah, we re well, it's not most that, of the time. For, 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 we, we say, yeah, this is where, 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 this, this is, this is where we want to be. This is, I love the aroma. I love the profile of this beer. I love the, the texture. This is good. Let's make it one more time and see if we can do it again. Okay. Or we say, you know, let me back to scratch off the top of this a little bit. Can we just, can? what if we gave it another week? What if we don't give it another week? What if we move it a little quicker? You know, and I think those, those, it goes back to, to these little percentages that you can just shave off. I hate to keep going back to the same word, but I mean, it's, that's really what it is. Shave is a very popular word in brewing these days, uh, but I love that you're adding uh, the scratch and the cream into the lexicon here too, because I'm going to have to use those words to describe these things. Um, yeah, texture. I mean, texture, mouth texture and beer is, I think it's overlooked a lot, and I think it is crucial. I think it's crucial because you, you want it to feel good and drink um, comfortably, you know what I mean, and invite you back. Right When you exhale after that, you're like, you're ready for another drink, right? And so I think that's that has to do with um, the whole pitcher, the whole the whole the full Monty, the the, the bubbles, the the glassware, the malt, the hops, the everything, and that's a, that's a temperature temperature. That's the that's the moving part. Residual time, sugar, residual time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Hellas obviously finishes about a, a plate of point higher than than we would do for Keller beer and stuff like that. So, and these are little things that we think about a lot. Well, I still want to dive into some more of the details. Um, and I think we've, I've been sidetracked in the creative process here, which is always a good thing. Um, so I'm going to get back to that. And I definitely also want to talk about the granary Calibre too. Before we do that, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast just for that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Um, and Omega, this past week, just announced they've identified the Agene responsible for haze rather cool i'm kind of curious to see where all of this goes uh, so much nice interesting stuff happening on the science side of brewing these days also keep your brewery running smoothly with five star chemicals their cleaning solutions are specifically formulated to meet the unique needs of breweries ensuring that your equipment stays clean and free of harmful bacteria 
and contaminants. From cleaning fermenters to kegs, they've got a solution for every step of the brewing process. Use five-star chemicals today and taste the difference in your brews. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. All right, we've got to get back to the some technical conversation here, Kevin, one way, one way or another. Um, but let's keep trying to follow Hellas, you know, through on this process. Uh, you know, so we've talked about mashing, we talked about water. Um, you know, how do you how do you hop Hellas in order to um, make sure that it has that smooth mouthfeel that you're looking for and, and enough structure to keep it from feeling like cloying or sweet? Well, cloning the sweet too is going to come from the you know your final fermentation, I would think. But you know we bitter it just enough to make it cleansing, and but it's a malt emphasized beer, obviously, and we go through low mash regimens. Thin, we don't sparge down too low, so we don't get any residual astringency coming through. And then we knock out very cold here, and we ferment very cold. We'll knock out about 45F. Wow. And we let it free rise to 47F. Well, I shouldn't say free rise. It works its way up to 47. And we'll do complete primary fermentation through there. Once um, sulfur levels have hit, which is um, a desirable level for us, we spawned everything off. And so the natural carbonation, like I was saying, too, adds a lot of that texture to the beer. And there's a sulfur component to when you start to spun the beer. Yeah. And that's all sensory driven or yeah. is that measured? It's, sen it's sensory. Well, you know, in between certain Play-Dohs kind of where you're at, because you, you don't want to capture that stuff. We want to let that blow off. And then we know now kind of like our target Play-Dohs where we're looking at before we spun off beers. I mean, we'll spun off IPA at the end. We'll hazy beers and everything. Yeah. Sure, because if you're not, if I was always taught in school that if you smell it, in fermentation, like a property, like a, a dry hop or something like that, before you put it in the can or the keg or in the glass, well, you're just losing that aroma. I know there are negatives that you don't want to capture, but at the same time, there's a lot of positives that are just blowing out into the bucket, and we want to capture that. I mean, we're talking about Hellas right now, but when we talk about making hoppy beers, I mean, we actually we condition those beers. A lot of people will, will brew these hazy beers or hoppies ipas or whatever and they're like quick fast get them in a the can hurry up and we i understand that it works for a lot of people but we actually lager most of our hazy beers and and ipas and then after that little bit of maturation then we'll go ahead and package it I got off track with Hellas, so didn't I? We got totally off track. <laughs> I want to come back to lagering IPA and pale ale because that's also uh, interesting. And also, you know, certainly makes sense with the way that hops um, and the kind of herbal character that uh, and intensity that hops can carry today, yeah. you know, helps mitigate that but so that we don't get distracted or off track here. Let's, okay. let, let's back, keep, back fo to let's Hellas. keep so, following. So, so after, prim after, yeah, after primary fermentation. And, and what do you, what do you uh, ferment with? What's your, your, is there a house lager yeast that you'll use? Yeah, it's a house lager yeast. We use pretty much in about 90% of our lager beers. It's a Bavarian lager yeast. 
Um, we use Chico for most of our ales. Um, obviously, Hazy has a different yeast for that kind of stuff. And, you know, in the barrel room, we've got all kinds of critters floating around in there. So um, after primary fermentation, we can either step cool it, depending on the beer, or we'll crash it. How long, you know, since you're doing such a cold fermentation, does that impact fermentation time at all? Yeah, it's about, it's a solid three weeks. Three weeks of fermentation. Yeah, I would say before, because then we'll do forced VDKs for the last week of it. And we're real stickler on VDKs. So um, it's got, we do, we pass around the VDK. How do you brew 4,000 barrels of beer on this 15-barrel system here with all the tanks in this brew house next to us and let lager beers do primary fermentation for three weeks? Well, the only, the the biggest lager beer that we can and package is Keller beer. And Keller beer is not lagered like that. Keller okay. beer is a very quick, raw, um, unmaturated beer. It's a yeah. cellar beer. It's sure, a beer sure. straight from the cellar. Yeah, it's yeah. raw, a lot of texture. Smart, yeah, smart how you so, did that, yeah. yeah. Which, which <laughs> lager is going to be the quickest? <laughs> but, I mean, I think a lot of that, we sell only those beers in the tap room. So we don't distribute any of them. Yeah. We do can. Like if we, we'll fill up a, uh, after lagering, we'll move it to a bright tank and a packaging tank. And then if we have anything after, we just can it. And then we'll throw it in the beer store for sale or I'll take it home or whatever. You know what I mean? We, we don't package a lot of that beer. We It just goes straight to the, we have 15 barrel serving tanks. And so it just goes right to those serving tanks. I We sell a ton of IPA, just like everybody else. Um, Ferta's our biggest seller. It's a little over 8%. Pilsner base, you know, sprinkle a two row and off to the races we go. Um, but I think that's how we push 4,000 barrels through the brew house. All right, all right. Um, interesting, nonetheless. Well, let's talk about the Granary Keller beer. You know, and this is one, again, that you've won multiple GABF medals for and that our our blind panel scored a 99 and our top-scoring German pale lager in our, our latest issue. Um, talk to me about, you know, the, the formulation of this beer, you know, what you looked to, uh, you know, for inspiration, uh, you know, on the – you know, amongst the, the canon of German lagers and what you were trying to achieve, you know, how did you, you know, how did you create a model for this? Do you describe it in language or, uh, you know, I just say, this is what I'm hoping to make out of this kind of beer. It, it was an interesting thing. It was probably about 2004 ish, probably right around there. I said to my boss at my old place, I said, you know, I want to make a beer, you know, I just want to make a, what I really wanted to do is start off what is beer like really i want to get down to nothing i want to strip it down to nakedness i mean it was 100 percent organic pilsner malt and whole leaf tetanic hops that's it you can put nothing else in it so i said okay this is the base this is beer this is the base this is just one grain and it's just one hop and i said oh okay now i could build 30 beers off of just this base here and what if we added some darker malts and we get into the munich thing and what if we did smoke malt now we could go into the rauk thing so the first time we brewed keller beer it was called zwickle beer um was me really just trying to get down to the foundation of what is beer what is just to me just straight nothing beer like what is it what does beer taste like just straight beer and I, that was the first time we brewed it and Right after that, we entered GBF and won a gold. And I said, oh, this is interesting. You know, it's unfiltered because I was trying to find a place for it to live in a competition anyways. So that's really where Keller Beer started. And went to, like I've said, when we were over in Europe, a lot of times you don't see a lot of Keller Beer in Germany. 
but it's there and the stories that i heard through like thomas told me a bunch of stories about how we it was almost like a peasant beer in a way because it's not the refined beer it's not the beer that's completely uh ready to go it's not filtered it's not lagered it's not maturated and so it was the beer that all the worker men can get after work you can't have the finished product but you can have this stuff that's still trying to get to where it needs to get to i like the texture of it you know it's like this cracker kind of i almost call it like wonder bread lightly toasted wonder bread like real shitty white bread and when it just gets toasted just a little teeny bit and you get that aroma like when you were a little kid and you remember that smell that's that's what really brings back memories of when i first started making those kind of beers and i like it it's got some sulfur to it it has um it's, it's got some yeast texture to it that's uh just it's not hazy like you in modern times you think of hazy but it it's hazy it's got some haze to it and that's a good that's a good it's a good thing it's a quality thing i, I like that is it st- and it's still tetanang nope nope <laughs> it's got a little sprinkle of tet uh holotar middle fruit i'm a yeah. big i'm a big middle fruit guy yeah uh yeah and i don't know what caused that change um not as spicy um not as uh peppery yeah. i want to say in and a it way. still has a, a decent yeah. uh, a bit of spice to it just not as spicy yeah and um that'll that'll be uh first charge and then uh a whirlpool and off to the off to the races so first charge and then whirlpool that's it yeah so there's no other hot side hops in there uh-uh how long's the boil? You want me to say it? <laughs> Ninety minutes. <Yeah. laughs> yep, I'm an old schooler. Yeah, yeah. we we do sixties on some on some beers. Um, I guess you could do thirties on some beers if you want. We've done four hours on some beers, so um, I know what works. Yeah, I know what's going to come out of the product, and I don't really want to mess with it. I, I'm happy with the direction that most beers are going. What, and what does that uh, you know longer boil give you? Does it give you more color? I mean, uh, you, you you know we're in a dry climate. Things are gonna you got a pretty fast boil off rate up here. Yeah, we boil about two o three, two o four. Um, never had a comment come back. We say we had DMS. Start there, I guess. I mean, um, sure, sure. Fully, fully isomerize all those hops. Get a nice big um, hot break, which is important for down the road for clarification. We don't yeah. we don't filter any beers here at all. And so um, we don't use biofine, we use biotime. <laughs> we use biofine a little bit every so often. You are stock of the dad jokes right there. Yeah, but time is time is our our biggest ingredient for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then you know Whirlpool edition seems like a, a modern uh uh, you know, thing to to graft onto this traditional beer style. The what? The a whirlpool edition oh, seems yeah, yeah. like a a modern uh, nod to yeah. hops. Uh, maybe not as traditionally German in that sense, but something to you know how how much of uh, how, how do you split the hops between that you know first charge and the whirlpool? You know, in terms of you know uh, volume of hops in both of those places. And, it's uh, more on the backside than the front side because yeah. you know you're looking for that hop aroma, that noble hop aroma, um, that herbalness that comes through in these German pills and you know German pills, Keller beers, basically German pills. It's not lagered it out and filtered. Yeah, and so you want that and German pills, pale German lager. Yeah, you know, they're all the like same that. thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, they're all the same thing. But I, did, I really have been very resistant to climb up to the top of the and dump a bunch of T90 
pellets in after fermentation to get more aroma in these old school traditional beers. I, I really try to get everything on the hot side and then let it try to hold on until the, until the end. Uh, I, I, there's nothing against it. I mean, I've had wonderful beers that are dry hopped and German lager beers, and that's great. Um, we just haven't gone down that road yet. Now we do make a ton of West Coast lager beers. So <laughs> this is what we call them. And those are most of our collaborations we've done with, you know, several breweries. Def definitely this year it's been really hot. Uh, very hot. West, yeah. West Coast or California. Well, it's the best, Pilsner. It's, yeah. it's, I love them. And it's really the best of both worlds. So I'm, I'm drinking a Pilsner, which I really enjoy. I enjoy everything about it. And I enjoy how it makes me feel and the drinkability of it. But I also love hops. And so now I'm getting the best of both worlds without drinking a double IPA. Now I'm drinking a Pilsner that's got, you know, I mean, you know, the gamut, mosaic, etc. blah, 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 down the road. Um, we've been experimenting with a lot of the, like the, the super delict and NZ one Oh twos and stuff like that. We did a big collaboration with roadhouse. They really helped Max and, and Johnny up there really helped us with, uh, our West coast lager beers. And, and we did, um, I guess the first beer that we did like that was with cloudburst last year. And, you know, Steve, he's a, he's a, hop master he's just crazy and he opened up our eyes to a whole new world and indeed he is yeah. and he will be on the podcast next week as Not a matter of fact uh yeah he's with a, a couple other friends and he makes great and the other beers are yeah they're world class and you know what and their beers are world class and that's all good and said but they're just good people i mean they're fun to hang out with they're 100%. just they're just fun yeah. people yeah. and that that speaks volumes so me. you know thinking about it conceptually you know, I hate the arguments of, well, it's not Pilsner. You know, um, how do you try to balance Pilsner character? What people, because what, what Pilsner is, is an expectation from consumers that has something to do with, you know, flavor, um, with the way that the beer presents. Um, and so there has to be something that roots it in this idea of Pilsner while at the same time bringing along these contemporary hop characters. And at some point, you know, there's this, there's some magical line here between West Coast Pilsner and, say, a cold fermented pale ale. Yeah. Um, you know, there is the line. I don't know if we can define exactly where that line is, but I, you know, it, it's, you know, when you taste it, right? Like, you know, there is a, what, how do you maintain a Pilsner character so that, you know, and define that separately than, say, a, pale ale uh, fermented yeah. with lager yeast. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, with raw ingredients. I mean, base malt. I mean, you you know, if you use extra pale pills or Barco or regular pills or, you know, Heidelberg pills or whatever you deem necessary, as you go down that road, I mean, I have found the older I got and the more that I judge these big competitions and do sensory and stuff like that, I feel like the two-row, pale two-row malt is got so aggressive in my world that I'm so hypersensitive to it that I'd rather just have the base of almost everything be Pilsner malt because it, it, it's the drinkability is there. The cleanliness is there and you can just add a lot of ingredients and a lot of aromas and flavors and adjuncts or whatever you want to do on top of that base. It's just a real user friendly consumable base that you can put makeup all over. And I think that's really where it, where it comes from. Especially for you where, you know, 12 beers on draft right now are all 5% yeah. or less, you know, and, and so having a clean profile to build from, um, you know, makes makes a lot of sense. But are there other flavor concerns that you're really looking for as uh, 
he has key points that people drinking these beers can you know latch on to that say hey this this is pilsner like yeah i think what well, abv has a lot to do with it um the higher the obviously abv goes the the texture b- boost up pretty quickly after the four or five percent range you can you get more of a a sweetness a lingering um mouth texture uh gooeyness i like to call it sometimes um and i I, I think this day and age that you can get those beers that are have those kind of textures and people like to consume those and stuff like that. But I also think that the consumer is so savvy now that they're really starting to gently drift away from that and they still want their hops and they still want their funky flavors and stuff like that. But underneath all that, they want a nice, clean, um, easily consumable product. That's what I think. I mean, but... <laughs> I could I, be wrong. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just curious, you know, again, like, you know, how you draw the lines between those things. You know, are there certain hops that you find work really well within this, you know, Pilsner lager fermentation or, uh, you know, some that you you've gravitate more to than others uh, and some that, you know, just stay in that IPA space or, you know, pale ale space? Yeah. You know, the, the, the traditional lager beers are traditional ingredients. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to glamorize it and say that we're doing something new, and because sure. we're really not. We use German malts and German hops, and we check, check hops if we need to, or you know, whatever we need to. And we make Italian pills. And that's a whole another story. That's a whole another thing. Why you call it Italian pills? Because you know, because you dry hop. Yeah, because you, you dry hop it or whatever. You, you dry hop it with German hops. You yeah, know? right. But that's an interesting one. That's Ericlea, like a lot of people use, and yeah. then we use Bobek and Aurora hops in there, and we dry hop it. And those hops, Bobek are, and Aurora, yeah, and those are totally wild hops. A lot of people haven't used them, I don't think, but yeah. you should try them because Bobek, yeah, it kind of smells like a bale of hay. Um, and okay. the <laughs> and the Aurora is super spicy and super huh. floral. It's it's really unbelievable, and that beer is the most herbal. It's like a Ricola, is what we say, like the cough drops. Um, it's hyper hyper um herbal it's really really neat well i go that direction and you know because our a classic italian style pills and you know in that kind of tipo pills model is going to be you know straight german noble hops yeah um dry hopped but but dry hopped with straight german noble hops i guess from one farm sites farm obviously yeah, yeah, yeah i guess i wanted to try hops that were a little bit more Located where the grain comes from, I guess that's the only mm-hmm. way of, of, you know, they they're, they come from Slovenia, and so it's. Uh, I kind of wanted to say like, if you're making something from, uh, if you're going to make a, a Florida Pilsner, that's true. And then be, Slovenia kinda, would be it, yeah. you know close down there to the the, you know, kind of what Adriatic, Adriatic. area where you know the Ericlea fields are yep. just north of that and on the Italian side and yeah. Um, so if I said like I was saying, for example, if you're going to make a whatever a a, a, a southern like a, a Florida beer, uh, okay, you can use this base that we use for a lot of stuff, but what what, what is that like? You know, what do you want, want something that you know maybe the hops are growing down there, maybe maybe they're very citrus forward and stuff like that because there's a lot of citrus trees and blah blah blah. And so if we want to move to the northwest, there's a lot of pine trees and it's piney, and maybe we want to get a little region uh, sprinkle of spice from that. So I think that's where that came from more than anything. Yeah. What's that? What's a Salt Lake City lager taste like? <laughs> <laughs> I got a bunch on draft. <laughs> 
uh, you know, Salt Lake City is a really religiously driven um, town. I'm hesitant to tell everybody how what a great place it really is because um, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And we got world class everything here, as, as you know. I mean, you can't beat the snow, the rivers, the mountains, the climbing, the fishing. Shh, stop yeah. telling everyone about this. You got to so cut can, cut that out of the pot. Let's uh, no, let's uh, let, but let's talk let's talk a little bit about uh, you know IPA and hoppy beers. Obviously, um, and I should you know step back on that. Your Furta Double IPA in our IPA issue before our Lager issue scored a ninety seven with our blind panel. I remember uh, you know Stan Hieronymus was one of our blind judge uh, panel judges on that who uh, who tastes you know who. Uh, was a strong advocate for for Ferda. Um, you know, whatever you're doing there on the West Coast IPA style is also hitting really hard. You know, talk to me about how you approach hoppy beers in addition to, you know, spunning them at the end of fermentation, which we'll get to too. But, you know, as you start thinking about designing, you know, how do you start designing, you know, say a, uh, a West Coast IPA now? Because I think modern west coast ipa as it as it is currently understood is say maybe quite a bit different than what anyone would have sold as ipa back when i was first drinking beer out here in 1995 in salt lake city oh 100 i mean it was two row and caramel malt and you know and that kind of stuff and it wasn't a really popular beer yeah, back then either uh, yeah. it was and not so, the style but you know 80 90 ibus and this and that and you know ours is I, I would bet you you know the last time we got that beer spun out it's it's under 50 ibus um a lot of pilsner base obviously yeah uh half a sprinkle of t-row and that's it and then half we, a sprinkle what's half a sprinkle you know 20% maybe heavy you know. technical measurement there 15 15%ish you know okay. it's not a lot and yeah. it's just uh and we don't use german malts for that we use idaho grown pilsner malt and it just like every other brewer out there knows it just really lets the hops shine through and the flavor idaho grown pilsner malt why yeah. that instead of german pilsner malt um it's super fresh it's a half the price and um why am i using german ingredients in an american beer What's freshman? What's freshness in the Pilsner malt lend to, say, a hoppy IPA? What does freshness lend? I mean, I guess uh, aroma, flavor, and texture. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. It's not as milly. It's not as husky. Um, the the crop literally is grown two hours north of here. Yeah. So I know right where it's grown. I know the fields where it's grown. You order it on a Tuesday, and on a Wednesday, it's here. Um, so local fresh i mean you can't go wrong with that i guess i mean we have used a lot of other base malts you know, cambrinus rar and stuff like that you know um, it's just something that we've fallen on that we like and it makes the product that we like it's very consistent and if it's working and it's consistent and you can you can meld these beers into what you want them to be and you always know that this base is going to be pretty consistent and to me it's 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 just pretty simple yeah how do you build the body to support the strong hop character in this because, and I wouldn't say that, you know, you have a, you don't have a huge bitterness to it, but there's a beautiful rounded hop character to it. That's very well-defined. Um, it feels like concise and intentional and it's, you know, properly supported, not excessively supported, but just, you know, there's a perfect spot there. Um, you know, but those hop flavors are still pretty strong you know how do you how do you think about that as you're building 
this Pilsner base to support it. Well, we want a we want a cleansing beer. We want you to smell it and taste it, and your after drink to be like, yeah, that's that's you know, it's got bitter into it. It's got backbone to it. It has um, it has this um, not abrasiveness, but assertive cleansingness to it. That's a only a, a two. It's basically a low bittering charge, big whirlpool, and then you know, we've learned over the years that we actually dry hop considerably less than we used to and we're getting more hop aroma and flavor out of that just with just different techniques that we're trying and timing really uh, yeast management and timing of the product itself uh, with the dry hop whether you recircuit or not or whether you just pop the top and dump it in uh, whether you're using cryo or not i think the timing and the amount that we're using now is a lot less than we used to we're just being more efficient with it in the in the timing sense goes that's like catnip in front of like so tell me more about this using less hops and getting more impact out of them what are well it used to be a five six day dry hop it'd be like okay let's dry hop we'll let it sit here for a week yay okay but now all of a sudden we're you're getting all these negatives off of it you're getting all these um autolysis soapy brothy um almost plasticky kind of aromas i mean a lot of times we'll do an initial dry hop which is nothing we were talking like a pound per barrel barely and then we say this this has passed its first VDK. All right, now we'll now we'll pound it with a with a dry hop, and then we'll do a, a forced VDK for four days in a row. And once it's negative VDK, it's like move it immediately. And so I think just the timing of the the hops that are sitting in solution, I think I almost think that less times it, it becomes brighter in the aroma and the flavor than than more time on hops. Now. I'm not I'm not an expert in IPAs by any means, but that's what works for us. I mean, sometimes we'll dry hop on a Monday and Wednesday and we're like, this beer's out. We gotta get it out of here. Because the longer it sits there, the it degrades a little bit. It it goes negative instead of positive. Hmm. Because once I'm at the top of the mountain and I'm going, Oh man, this beer is popping and it's and it's negative and it's terminal and you know, we've pressurized the tank, spun it off and stuff like that. It's like it's like get it out of here and get it into the packaging tank. Because obviously IPAs want to be drank fresh. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. So talk to me about, you know, if you're spunding tanks and also dry hopping, how does that work technically? Well, with with those kind of beers, well, I don't even want to call it spunding. We we do put spuns on. You're but, bung, bunging the tank. But bung the tank off. Yeah. But we do have a pressure release through the, through the spun. You know, it's right around 10 or 12 PSI. Sure, and, sure. And so, but... If you smell that gas coming off after dry hopping, I mean, it's like amazing. And I'm going, wow, I don't want this going out into the world. I want to go right. into a glass and you know, or a can or whatever the vessel you're serving out of. So uh, that's basically our chain of thought. I mean, basically, that's how we do it. It sounds so simple, and but it it's it's not really simple, but it is very simple. You know, it's so then you are dry hopping while they're slightly before terminal instead yeah. of a post-terminal dry hop yeah because we'll do like a dry hop before terminal gravity uh a small little charge and i kind of feel like that kicks in this this vdk um sure. circus that we go through every time oh you're gonna get into the hop yeah. creep thing yeah. and it's gonna yeah. you're gonna see some additional fermentation maybe some diacetyl production yeah you know yeah. your yeah. vdks right and once that's mopped up and i think of with a little bit of fermentation still left in primary that will mop that that VDK out of there a little bit quicker. It'll it'll f- 
force that diacetyl out. You're not an ALDC enzyme guy. I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> I know Ben does. We've talked about that before. We did a collab with those guys this year. We used the Saria malt, did a Keller beer with those guys, and, and yeah, I mean, I call those guys a lot. I yeah, I have a lot of good friends in the industry that, which is super beneficial. I don't know any other job in the world you can do that with and call them and say I've got an issue, like or what do you think about this, and then I'll call like Steve or call someone else and say what do you think about this and ask four people the same question and then make your own, make your own path. That's yeah. No, I haven't used that yet. I want to try it though. I haven't, I haven't tried that yet. I guess we should. Well, I'll tell you, we are super hypersensitive when it comes to VDKs. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's like even just a shake of a dog's tail, I can get it. And I'm like, mm-mm. And then you just got to let it go. You just got to let it do its thing. It's which, but, but I can understand we're not a production brewery. And I can understand that there are timelines and there are people that want your product and they're waiting for this product. And, and if you need to use, you know, these enzymes or whatever to help you get along down the road, God bless you. I mean, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. You mentioned earlier that, you know, these sensory moments, you know, play a big part at every part of the beer evaluation for you. You know, what does that like final, you know, sign off step look like then for you and the staff as you're tasting things and saying, yeah, that's the beer. Yeah, that's the beer that we want to push forward or hey, maybe you need something more of this. You know, how, how does what does that process then look like when you you validate a beer and again it's not like you have a giant like blind sensory lab it's not a huge production brewery in that that sense where you've got you know qualified tasters and you're running through sample ox or draft lab and you know Mm. uh, taking a purely scientific approach some of this can just simply be you all tasting beers together off the tank and saying hey what do you think and uh i mean that yeah we're i mean i always like to tell people that you know we're not a we're not a very efficient brewery and I know that's a bad thing to a lot of people and I'm not trying to waste money or time, but the beers that we make, um, I need to give them the time to develop, to become what they want to become. And like I said before, if you just run out, I mean, that's not something we'd like to do, but it happens. And yeah, we do just come together as a, as a team we got six guys working the brewery. We sit down. Everybody's been sensory cha- trained multiple times. Everybody's been to school. We sit down and go, yes, where are we at with this? Okay, and the last time we made this beer, it took 72 hours. This time it's 84 hours. Or, you know, and that's six days. It's five days. Well, what's the difference here? What, what's going on here? You know, what went different? Let's look at the mashing. Let's look at the timing. Let's, did we drop out? Did we, you know what I mean? Are we rousting this? Are we recircling these hops? And so, yeah, it's really a team thing. It really is. It's really sensory-driven, um, communal thing. We all look at each other and go, yeah, this is going in the right direction. And then when they say the beer, basically we'll say, I'm ready. And when the beer says, I'm ready, we say, right on, let's go. That's basically it. So this this key beer granary, you know, is not necessarily – doesn't see a long lagering period. Yeah. It's a Keller beer, yeah. you know, and so it comes out, you know, in a faster way. Your Hellas sees a long lagering time. You know, w- when you are planning on these long tank residencies, do you have any rules of thumb about what you like and why in these in certain specific lager styles you like uh, durations of lagering time for those? Yeah, I mean, as as these beers develop too, it's it's more of a 
texture aroma thing as they go down the road and you can say this is just not maturated this thing is immature still like maybe it needs more time obviously higher abv beers get a little bit more lagering time um like i said we don't filter any beer here so um we can either put it in the 15s or the 30 horizontals and let it let it really cream up and round out before before we say yeah this is good enough to put it on tap so i don't really want to put anything on tap that I'm like, well, it's kind of all right, you know what I mean? Like, we're almost there. Let's just let's just get it on, you know what I mean? Now, we're, like everybody else in the world, shit happens, right? But that's not something that we like to practice, and it's not something that that's not our final goal. And especially with Hellas or Czech Pills, um, or like our Oktoberfest beer, or, or like you're drinking the Ralph beer. Ralph beer needs a real long lagering time. You know, we're in between five and seven weeks on that because just that top scratch of it with a little bit of acric, that smoky, and I, it, it carries over into the texture of the beer. And I want to, I want to cream that off. I want to round that off and, and let it um, mature more. It just has a better texture to it. Yes, I was drinking. Now I'm drinking hell. Well, I was drinking Hellas. Now I'm. That's food. That's a, actually that's a food or lager beer. Oh, that's the food or lager beer. Yeah. Okay. So we do um, organic pills and then a spelt pilsner that we do a primary and steel, ship it to a lagering tank that's got cool plates in it. It's a fooder. Shouldn't say lagering tank, fooder. And then we let it sit a there. A wooden lagering tank. Yeah, yes. yeah, sure, it's vertical. But that one rests for about eight to nine weeks. And it gets this like a cedar woody, kind of like toothpicky, um, little bit of astringency to it, which I like. Mm. It kind of reminds you of wood in a way. And so those are fun beers to make. Yeah, yeah. Well. I want to zoom out here at the end and look at it from a broader perspective. You know, you've over your career have won lots and lots of medals for the beers that you make. You know, if you're thinking about what it is that drives not just a culture of striving for excellence, but also some of these differences within beers that rise above the fray those beers that within uh, you know tasting within the context of other incredibly high quality beers rise to the top and become those things that are noteworthy what do you think some of the key practices are that accomplish those things what are some of the real difference makers from a brewery perspective to help those beers in this kind of context rise above their peers? Uh, clean brewery. <laughs> cleanliness, clean cleanliness. Brewery. Clean. Listen, you can't make clean beer in a dirty brewery. I mean, yeah. I am a clean freak when it comes to the brewery. There's, there, like you saw when you came in, there's not a day that the brewery is not absolutely perfect. There's, it is spotless. Yeah, it is beautiful. There's no option there. It is there. so clean. Yeah. Um, it was so clean that I just remarked on how clean it was as soon as I saw it there. Everything was perfectly cared for and in perfect place. Sure. And that goes all the way through to how we receive the grain, how we stack the grain, how we mill it. And we mill it just minutes before we mash in. We don't mill days before and stuff like that. It's, it's everything. The tanks can never be clean enough. There's new gaskets can transfer it out constantly. Every tank gets broken down. It's not like... I got to run a quick CIP loop on this tank so I can move into it. I mean, that's like a four or five hour process. We've ripped the entire tank apart. I mean, everything has to be absolutely spotless. 
because you want to give the beer the best chance itself to to be the beer instead of having to fight um, old yeast, old malt, dirty tanks, bad serving lines. You know, we get we're do freaks when it comes to canning and packaging. I mean, the lower the better, obviously, and that's a struggle that'll never end. And I think all those little teeny things add up to a world class product. You got to start with a with a real clean base, and keep that precision and cleanliness all the way through the process, even all the way down to the to serving our beers out of the tap room. Every beer here has got its own glass. All the glasses are solemn. They're all got um, nucleation points in them. The foam that we pour, it's slow pour everything. Everything takes a long time. The beer takes a long time. The the brewing process takes a long time. Maturation, pouring, serving. We're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. The thing is to have, like you said at the beginning, you're only going to live once. So do it right. Clean, precision, uh, thoughtfulness. You know, I think that's uh, throughout the whole process. You can't never be too lazy to be like, oh, I'll just drop that tank out tomorrow. Mm-mm, you got to do it today. You got to do it right now. And you got to document it. You got to document all that stuff. And so when, the, when all of a sudden you go, oh, we made this beer. and Man, it's so good. Holy smokes. Well, do here you know you have this documentation of what, what what you did through the whole process was it raining that day was i hung over what you know what was going on we were slamming busy that day we were canning and double brewing and da, 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 da. i think all those little teeny things add up to when you look back at it and say okay this is what happened oh those everyone was out of town that weekend that's why we didn't get the dry hop on that okay oh we didn't drop out the yeast that's why we got this little bit of like brothiness to it oh, okay okay that's so I think every little teeny thing, it's it's like we babysit the beer. It's like a newborn child, every single beer. It's like we, it's like you have to hold it the whole way until it goes to school, which is the glass. You know what I mean? So I think for me, that that's the most important thing. You really, really dial every single teeny little thing you do from, I mean, oxygen to VDKs to yeast, to malt, to hops, to attitude, to good skiing the, you know everything everything sure. everything adds up it's life right I yeah, mean, yeah you're living life and you're making a product and and as you're making this product you're you're putting these vibes in this in this life into this product and i think all that stuff adds up 100 percent. so it's july right now i imagine that some of your competition loggers are in tanks right now um you know fermenting away is there some do you do anything special for the batches that make their way into competition? I like to say no, but probably yes. You know, <laughs> I, I, I guess appreciate you, your I, honesty. I, you there. know, I guess you want every beer to be world-class competition or not. Cause these, you know, everybody likes to win a medal. Everybody likes to go up on stage and get patted on the back. But about 72 hours later, everybody just kind of doesn't remember it anyways. They kind of forget about it a little bit. You what are you always, talking about? Well, you always what have, these, you, you always have these accolades and stuff like that, but, after the competition, you get the satisfaction of, yay, you did this. You still need to go back on Monday and still make that same world-class beer over and over and over, even though it's not going to go in front of a bunch of judges and blind in front sure, of all your sure, peers, sure. all your peers and all, you know, the big competitions and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I, I would like to think that if, if we're making competition beers, obviously we want perfectly healthy yeast. We want real fresh ingredients. We, we want fresh bags of hops and we want the brew house completely gets torn apart i mean we pull the entire lot ton apart we pull the kettle everything 
heat X, you know, the whole nine yards, all these little teeny areas that you can really um, put negatives into the final product. I guess we, you would like to say that you don't, but I got a funny feeling that most people do, you know, because, you know, you, you care about it, you know, and you, and you want to be known for making world-class beer, you know. Of course, of course. Well, that all makes perfect sense. And thanks for letting me dive into some of your secrets here, Kevin. I really appreciate it. This is a great place. Yeah, I appreciate you coming out. You finally made it to close. Utah. Look at us. I made it back to Utah. Uh, back to Utah. Back to Utah. Right, but right. this is, you're right. This is the very first yeah. podcast yeah. Um, in the last six years that I've, I've ever recorded in Utah or with a Utah brewer. And you're the first. But, of course, on the occasion of, of talking about lager brewing with you, like I had to drive out here. And I'm going to drive back tomorrow and make this long trip just for you. I appreciate really, it. Really, just to drink some of these right here with you while we talk about brewing beer. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24 7 service and support. BSG understands that the best beers start with the best ingredients. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduce waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. Tabski QR code ordering is a future brewery ordering. Omega stylized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your molten hops. Keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals. And ABS Commercial is your full service brewery outfitter. Of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please go to barrenbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. Uh, help support us and our ability to bring you this podcast every week. And, uh, of course, enjoy all the great uh, content, perspectives, recipes, and everything else that you can only get in the pages of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Um, you know, fun thing, I, I, real, I saw a chart earlier this week. And uh, the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast is the number one beer podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts in this kind of food and beverage category. That was kind of cool. Yeah, congratulations. Kind of wild. I was yeah. kind of excited about that. I'm glad that folks are listening to this out there. Well, you work hard at your craft. You should. You know, you got one life, right, Kevin? Amen. Amen, brother. Like, try to do the best you can. Make it the best you can. And be, good, be a good person. Do good. I can't take the money with me, you know, but uh, oh, hopefully people true. remember... And we can leave a legacy for, for caring about what we did. Um, if people want to learn more about Templin Family Brewery, um, both out in the digital space and here in the real world, where do they find you, Kevin? Yeah, tfbrewing.com, Instagram, same thing. Templin. And a tap room right here in Salt yep. Lake City? Yeah, we got a tap room here. It's a couple hundred people can fit. We have a 250 people outside. We have a beautiful patio, fire pits, super dog friendly. We do a lot of dog adoptions. I got to drop that in there because my wife is super passionate about adopting dogs and stuff like that. So we have a lot of those events here. We have a barrel room that does private events. It's always out, you know, for special events. And yeah, come by any time. Don't hesitate just to come in. Say, I work at a brewery. I love beer. This, that, another. We'll grab a beer and we'll head right into the brew house. It's real simple. It's a beautiful space that you built right here. And of course, the beers are phenomenal, world class, award winning highly rated and all of those things thanks for sharing some of your perspective on brewing with me kevin thanks jamie cheers appreciate you this podcast has been brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer to learn more or to subscribe visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew 